Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And so, um, and first of all, I had to thank Rita and Jeff for setting me up with this multimedia thing, which I'll just play for a second as I get going. It's the dramatic uh, prelude to my talk. So, um, does everyone, everyone feel excited? All right, uh, probably enough of that. All right, well, Jeff can maybe hum the uh, theme song while I go. So actually, this was, um, what I'm gonna be talking about today is not really, has not really been the focus of my research, but it's this topic that had been kind of brewing in the, in the background, and I really thought nothing of it, and I thought, well, this is you know, just gonna be a non-issue that, that's gonna blow over, and it's become uh, more and more important. And as I think about my, my pediatric career, this is the second time that I've really been caught off guard by something that's really upsetting the public, the, the first time being the, uh, the thimerosal uh, concerns with um, vaccines, which at, at the time there was all this concern about thimerosal. I thought, well, you know, this is just like not going to be a big deal and it's going to blow over and it's been this persistent problem. And, and so this is the, the uh, a, a second example of something that I really didn't think was a big problem that, that's become a big problem. And so the title of my talk here is obviously Raiders of the Lost Blood Spots. And the reason I picked this title, actually there are two reasons, but the second one I'm not going to tell you until the end of the talk. Um, do you remember the in, do you remember the scene at the very end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where there's that big warehouse and the guys like pushing the uh, the, the ark? That's that's the big warehouse. <laughs> so um, this is the image that I want you to keep in your head because I think this is what the public thinks is is going on with uh, dried blood spots. So kind of keep this in mind and and with that I'm going to jump backwards and explain what the concerns are and and how we've gotten there. So, um, and then this is the other, the other title of my talk, which is Help the Government Has My um, DNA. And um, I don't know if you can see, there's this cherubic uh, uh, little girl wearing a, uh, a onesie that says, Help the Government Has My DNA. And this is the Citizens Council for Health Freedom, Securing Health Freedom uh, for All, and has a bunch of information about uh, the government and, and your DNA and all the nefarious stuff that they're doing. And again, I, you know, when I started finding this stuff, I thought, oh, this is just like a fringe thing. But it turns out that there are a lot of groups um, like this. And as I go through my talk, I, I hope that you all uh, interrupt me both with um, uh, you know, thoughts about where this should go in, in terms of my own work, but also um, reflections of how these kinds of concerns might impact the kind of personalized medicine work that, that you all uh, are doing. So with, with that as uh, sort of the prelude, I, I want to take you back to the very beginning of newborn screening just to explain how we got there. So newborn screening developed back in the 1960s um, by primarily a, a man by the name of Robert Guthrie, who developed the Guthrie bacterial inhibition assay, which was a way to detect elevated levels of phenylalanine in dry blood spots. And the idea being if you had elevated levels of phenylalanine, that was suggestive of um, phenylketonuria or um, PKU. It was a semi-quantitative test where basically they would uh, put a drop of blood onto a piece of filter paper and um, cover it with a culture medium that had an inhibitor that could be overcome by um, high levels of phenylalanine. So if the bacteria grew on the blood spot, then that was indicative of having um, uh, PKU. And the amount of bacteria is proportional to the um, phenylalanine level. So pretty clever, huh? And I actually was able to find it. So this, this, is, this is not the kind of 
dry blood filter paper that they collected back in the in the 1960s Guthrie area. But this this shows the Guthrie um, test where there's a, a normal dry blood spot that was put uh, on the culture medium there, and then that's uh, uh, filter paper that has high levels of phenylalanine, and you can see this bacterial growth around it. And you know the kind of th the the thing that's interesting to me is that the um, Newborn screening relies on basically the same filter paper that was used back in the uh, 1960s for the um, for, for this test. And so PKU was the first test that was included in newborn screening. And if you go into most nurseries still, they, they talk about getting the PKU test and uh, sort of the broader uh, array of things that are included in newborn screening. So over the past um, uh, two decades or so, there's there's been this just rapid expansion in the conditions that can be uh, identified through newborn screening. This is due to new screening technology tied to new treatments as well, because people don't want to screen for things that you can't uh, uh, treat. There's been harmonization across states, and um, there's become better coordination between public health agencies for um, both short-term follow-up, and by short-term follow-up, I mean from the time that a baby has a, a positive newborn screen to the time that they get diagnostic follow-up. And then long-term follow-up is all the stuff that happens from the time that you're diagnosed through treatment and assessing outcomes and stuff like that. Those are things that I've talked about here in the past, and I'm happy to talk about more, um, probably ad nauseum if anybody asks me a question about it. But but it's not really going to be the focus of today. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's typically days. So it, 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 for most conditions, you can establish the diagnosis pretty quickly. They're, they're diagnostic tests. There's some conditions that are um, uh, not recommended for inclusion uh, nationally for newborn screening, but that some states include, um, like New York, with um, uh, crab A disease. And that's a condition that is hard to establish the diagnosis. And so those children sometimes are followed for months before they're ruled in or out. But typically, this is you know, just a matter of weeks before uh, all is said and done. States historically have done a really good job in, in terms of the um, short-term follow-up, but um, uh, they've not done much in the way of long-term follow-up. And that's, you know, that's created a whole bunch of problems in terms of knowing what the long-term benefits of these treatments are and stuff like that. Um, but does that, does that answer your question? Okay, so there's a whole alphabet soup of players involved in newborn screening. There's um, the Secretary's Advisory Committee on Heritable Disorders in Newborns and Children, which is the, the top one listed there, it has like the world's worst uh, uh, acronym. But this is the um, body that makes recommendations to the Secretary of Health and Human Services about what things ought to be included in newborn screening. There's the National Coordinating Center, the NCC, which is located uh, in Washington, DC. It's really part of the American College of Medical Genetics. And they work with individual states to uh, improve how newborn screening works. Um, there's also, and that's funded by HRSA. There's also these things called the regional coordinating centers, which um, we're here in the, in the southeast, and they, they do a number of activities related to newborn screening and, and genetic services uh, in general. They have an annual meeting. I don't know. I, I know uh, Dr. Ginsburg's been to that, but I don't know if anybody else uh, here has been. There's the uh, National Newborn Screening and Genetics Resource Center which is another federally funded body that provides information about newborn screening. And if you ever want to know like what the different states screen for, this is the thing you should look at. If you Google Genes RS, you can find it. Um, there's the 
Genetic Alliance, which is a, really an advocacy group, it's an umbrella group that uh, represents a bunch of different rare disorders, and they've really hopped into the newborn screening world. And they uh, have now been funded by the feds for this uh, uh, website called Baby's First Test, which is a clearinghouse of information about newborn screening for families. And then the last group up there is the Newborn Screening and Translational Research Network, which is also run through the American College of Medical Genetics. And this is a way that if you wanted to you know, screen for whatever condition and do a study to find out whether or not the screening was feasible and led to better outcomes. It used to be that, you know, because you had to screen many thousands of babies, it was really hard and expensive to do that because you'd have to recruit all these different nurseries and kind of recreate that infrastructure from start. Uh, so instead, what they've done is um, they've, they've formed this uh, research network that uh, already has the infrastructure in place and coordinates with hospitals to be able to evaluate newborn screening. So, at, and uh, you're going to hear more about these groups in a little bit. I guess by way of disclosure, I do a lot of work for the Secretary's Advisory Committee. So, we, you know, we don't use the Guthrie spot uh, anymore. It's been replaced by um, tandem mass spec, um, primarily for most of the metabolic stuff. And then there are other testing methods. I'll talk about that in a bit. And you know, just to give a, a plug for, for Duke, most of the tandem mass spec uh, uh, research w was done here uh, in, with uh, Dr. David Millington. Um, and we, you know, we've really been on like, the, the cutting edge. Um, but still things have relied on these dry blood spots and it's really been been central in how public health agencies work because they know when they get a dry blood spot that there's a baby out there and they're able to use information on the dry blood spot card to be able to follow the baby and they're also able to um, uh, compare the dry blood spots they get into electronic birth certificates to find out if there's a baby born that didn't get uh, newborn screening so the dry blood spot has really been just sort of this like physical thing that's allowed them to um, uh, be able to track things. Questions so far? And so where are they stored and how are they cataloged and all that stuff? Oh, you'll see it, you'll see in a second, but it, it varies. But, you know, the, in, I can tell you in North Carolina, it's this kind of dusty room that's, um, and they're in, in, in boxes. So it's created a problem. Like exactly. It's like, so each state has, you know, different ways of storing it, but they're not, uh, to my knowledge, at least stored in any, like, you know, specific, like, temperature controlled. Uh, place. Um, but well, let, me, let me start getting, because I'm going to get there in a second. So this is the um, uh, dry blood card that's used here in North Carolina. And again, the, um, the, each state develops their own newborn screening program, because you know, it's not in the Constitution. Anything that's not in the Constitution is a state thing, and newborn screening is definitely not in the Constitution. <laughs> so um, these are the, the, the spots where the blood is put in. And then there's a whole bunch of information that's included on here. Um, most of this information is to be able to help find the baby in case things are positive. But it includes things like uh, the newborn's medical record number and where they were born. I apologize, I can't read this too well. The birth date, when the specimen was taken, how old the specimen was, information about race, ethnicity, uh, how the baby was feeding. That's important because it can affect the results of some of the metabolic tests, the um, Medicaid number if it's known, um, all sorts of information about the mother. Um, uh, so there's really a lot of, I mean, you know, this is PHI, right? So lots of, lots of very personal, uh, unique identifying information. 
This column over here is for the newborn hearing screening test. So right now, the only point of care newborn screening test is hearing. And by point of care, I mean that the, all the screening and the results are generated within the hospitals and then reported to the state instead of the state uh, being in charge of running all the screening. It becomes hard when there's point of care screening because the um, state's not there to be able to, you know, make sure that things are happening in the right way. And that's created a lot of problems. And if there's time, which I suspect there will be, I can talk about, there's a, another uh, point of care newborn screening test that the secretary's recommended. Okay, so, but let's, I, I digress. I guess it's, you know, I'm at the head of the table, so I'm allowed to do that. Let's, let's go back to where we were before. So, um, you know, first of all, is newborn screening uh, DNA testing? Because that, that, this is an issue that comes up. So, you know, it's true that most of the conditions that are included in newborn screening are um, heritable. There's some notable examples, things like congenital hypothyroidism. Um, but the newborn screening test itself, uh, even though you know we got this big DNA sample, is not DNA testing in general. So, you know, the tests look at things like uh, metabolic products through tandem uh, mass spec, uh, sickle cell disease through um, uh, high precision liquid chromatography or uh, isoelectric uh, focusing. I hope nobody asks me how these machines actually work because I have no clue. Um, there is uh, cystic fibrosis uh, testing, which uh, can be done with. Uh, uh, usually, it's, uh, what most states are doing now is first doing a, a immunoreactive trypsinogen, which is elevated in babies with um, cystic fibrosis, and then following up with uh, DNA looking for the common mutations associated with um, uh, cystic fibrosis. There's some variation in how states do that, but this, this, you know, of all the things, uh, cystic fibrosis is probably the most DNA-like test out there, um, and then. Uh, one of the newest things that have been recommended for addition to uh, newborn screening is screening for severe combined immunodeficiency or uh, SCID. This is the, the bubble void disease, if anybody remembers John Travolta sitting in the bubble. Um, and again, giving another kind of shout out to Duke, uh, Dr. Uh, Rebecca Buckley in our Department of Pediatrics did a lot of the work um, that, that, that allowed this recommendation to move forward. So this is a this is a, a DNA test, sort of. So um, babies that are born with severe combined immunodeficiency um, uh, will, will be missing these things called TRECs, which are little ringlets of uh, DNA that can appear in the, um, you know, what, what we're supposed to be functioning um, uh, T cells as sort of genetic recombination uh, happens for them to develop the receptors and whatnot. Um, again, I'm like quickly like leaving my like zone of comfort, but basically it's looking for magic rings of uh, DNA that are missing, but it's not looking at any specific uh, mutation. So why aren't there more direct uh, DNA tests? Well, first of all, there, there are a lot of mutations that are associated with the things that are on newborn screening and some are novel new mutations. Another problem is that there's oftentimes poor genotype-phenotype correlation. Um, uh, and, and so just because you uh, identify the, the phenotype, or the genotype rather, doesn't mean that the baby's gonna have the condition. Again, that's not true for all the things that we're talking about, but, but in general. And, and that combined with the fact that we have other um, multiplex tests that can identify most of the conditions already. There, there just really hasn't been a move to doing that direct genotype uh, testing, and, and that's where I get to the issue of cost. It would be a real paradigm shift. It's just not the way that um, uh, public health laboratories have doing things, but you know, it, it's, it, 
it's only a matter of time, I think, before. What's the cost of a complete newborn screening panel? So it's hard to get to the actual cost because um, when, when you talk to the health departments to figure out about the cost, they include in there like the whole process of getting the sample and, and following up and stuff like that. But you know, if you, you talk to most states, it's only order of like 50 bucks, 60 bucks. So, um, and that, you know, that, that includes like building in like their follow-up and stuff like that. Most individual tests, though, if you look at the laboratory costs for doing things, are far under um, a dollar per condition. And that's sort of like a, a threshold that people keep uh, in their head. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, you know, maybe at the individual level, it's not like a lot of money, but there, there are, you know, four million babies born each year in this country. So, you know, it adds up. So it, that's a great question too. It comes from a combination of um, public resources, so things like uh, uh, Medicaid and HRSA supports some of it, and um, uh, you know, just and, and that's what supports public health laboratories in general. And then there are a lot of insurance companies that will pay for the newborn screening test. Now, there's some things that are coming online that nobody's paying for. Um, I'm going to steal my thunder later, but uh, so it's it's this real sort of amalgamation of money, but a lot of it is is public health funds, and that really puts the health department on edge because as new conditions are being added, really the the you know the pie is only but um, so big, and the, these health departments are already facing a lot of cuts and stuff like that. So although I'm you know excited that things like long-term follow-up are getting better, I'm kind of uh, you know, it's it's an ugly time to to be working in a state public health department. But, but your fifty dollars figure doesn't include any follow-up. Well, some of that goes to follow-up, so um, it's not that's it's hard to track the dollar, and and I've tried to do it, um, and it's really hard to know like where all the sources come from. But basically, at the end of each year, the public or you know at the beginning of each year, really the public health department knows how much money they're going to have coming in from the different sources and that they can figure, they kind of jigger around how they're going to do follow-up. Um, and that, that 50, 60 buck number is one that, that I keep in my head because that's what the insurance companies are willing to pay for newborn screening. That's why we're talking policy. I should know this, but you have to talk me through the logistics. The way it works is every child born in a hospital, say North Carolina, is mandated by Okay. okay, so this is like how a bill becomes a law kind of question. All right, so what happened uh, was historically uh, states developed their own newborn screening program. They picked the conditions that were on there and um, mandated that, that all babies born would be tested for these things. And what ended up happening you know, by the 80s, was that there was this tremendous variation in the things that were included in newborn screening. So if you're born in North Carolina, had an MCAD, which affects maybe one in 10 or one in 15,000 babies, you'd be picked up. If you were born in Virginia or South Carolina, you wouldn't. And so it, it was recognized that this was a big mess. So the Health Resources and Service Administration, which is part of the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, uh, put together an expert panel and basically locked them in a room. And they came up with this thing called the Recommended Universal uh, uh, screening panel. Um, and there was a lot of controversy around the time because that was just basically people, you know, there, there were a lot of advocates and, you know, experts who may have been sort of biased about the public health impact of some of the things. But, but you know, they had to do something and they had to do it quickly. And so that 
uh, was released in the in the early 2000s, and um, there's not much of a stick that the that the feds have for making states adopt it other than kind of like wagging their finger and shaming them into it. There is some funds that, that are associated with um, uh, getting it, but you know, it's not as good as like the, um, you know, the, the, the um, transportation people and like making the speed limit 55. They don't have, it's not that, you know, it's not that well linked, but basically states moved fairly rapidly to the recommended <laughs> universal screening panel. Around the same time, so this was in 2007, 2008, there's federal legislation passed called the Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act, which established the, um, the authority of the Secretary's Advisory Committee on Heritable Disorders in Newborns and Children to review conditions for inclusion in newborn screening and using an evidence-based process. And that's a contract that I have. So I developed the evidence reviews for that advisory committee. I don't vote. I just like, you know, pick up the rock and let the worms crawl out. Um, <laughs> but they, 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 they realized they had, to, they had to kind of offshore that evidence review because of how that first product was perceived. So um, there are a million conditions that people want to add to newborn screening. Um, so it's kind of like the Full Employment Act for Alex Kemper. And there's... Um, and there's also an interest in revisiting the conditions that are on the panel right now. So there's, depending upon how you count it, there's between 29 and 50 things um, uh, on the panel. So we're probably going to go back and revisiting those things, and some things may drop off. So states in general follow the things that are on this panel, um, but then, the, you know, the, but states are also free to do things that they just want to add on. So New York, New Mexico, Missouri and Indiana have been uh, have passed legislation uh, to screen babies for the lysosomal storage disorders, and um, from looking at the evidence, it's probably not as well supported, shall I say, since I'm being recorded, um, as um, you know, as some of the other things. But you know, the, you know, in a sense, maybe these natural these natural experiments are important to fill in some of the evidence gaps. Um, so, but it, does that does that explain it? That's how a bill becomes a law. So, and states really do pay attention when the secretary adds something to the recommended universal screening panel. So does anybody know what the latest thing was that, that was added on before I, no guess? So that uh, babies be screened for critical congenital heart disease uh, by pulse oximetry. So the recommendation is that uh, all newborns, and it's actually pretty compelling. Um, uh, and we can talk about that. But anyway, I think that there's gonna be more DNA tests. It's only a matter of time, right? Because how much does a, does a uh, doing, you know, sequencing the full genome cost now? Um, it, it probably can be done for under $5,000. Under 5000 right, and it's only good to go down. Did you see the ion bus out here uh, yesterday? No, I missed it. Uh, the uh, company that makes one of the genome sequencers called Ion Torrent is doing a national tour of um, bringing their machines all over the country. Uh, don't let it's them take your DNA. Right. So I think that, well, that's the other thing is, I think a lot of stuff is going to move out of the health department. And so um, I, I think that there's going to be more of this point of care newborn screening that's going to be done. So we have hearing, now we have congenital heart disease. There's a lot of work done. I, I, I think, the, have the Liquid Logics people spoken at this forum? So the, these are people who are developing uh, laboratory on a chip stuff that could be used to screen for a lot of stuff that's being screened in newborn screening. I think that, I think that the old model of these blood spots going to the health department and then the health department being able to do their, their magic is, I think, I think we're in a transition period where there's going to be, that, that's not necessarily the way it's going to work in the future. So 
so all these dry blood spots like go to the, the state health department and, and they're, they're useful for all sorts of things. Remember, I actually took me a while to find this. Do you remember what this was from the, anybody from the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie? Remember that was, huh? The amulet thing that they were looking for that like went and like the, the evil Nazi guy burned his hand and all that. But so, <laughs> you know. There's, so there's, I was thinking, the reason I was thinking about this is like there's a lot of useful stuff that you can do with this. It's not everything, you know, because remember like in Ray's Lost Ark, they, they, got, they got messed up because they didn't have the other side where it had the rest of the directions. Anyway, I thought it was funny. So there, there are a lot of things that you can use the dry blood spot for. So uh, issues of quality improvement and evaluation. So um, samples are actually traded between different health departments so that they can rerun and calibrate their equipment and make sure that, that things are working well. It's also uh, important if you uh, are starting to run into having false positives, right? So all these conditions are really rare. So false positives are, are uh, you really need to work hard to, to uh, avoid them because even if you have a very specific test, you, you just end up having a lot of false positives. So um, there's a lot of work being done uh, between states to do that. And then the other thing is nobody wants to have a false negative. And so in the cases when there's a false negative, they can go back to the dry blood spot and figure out uh, what's going on. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting is that there, you can use them to develop new screening approaches. So let's say you developed a new test that could identify some uh, heritable condition and you want to find out how well it's working, well, you can go to, uh, to some of the states and get, you know, 20,000 dry blood spots. They'll give you like a little punch and you can run your test and you can see if it sort of matches up with what you think the population prevalence of these conditions are. So uh, don't, uh, people don't consent for these, do they? They do not consent for that. That's, see, you're, 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 you're we're going to talk about that. So that's where. So this is historically. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it should have been anticipated, right? So, but but let's just talk about. So this is historically what people have been using for. So, um, and for surveillance as well, and that kind of you know, uh, looking to, to you know, this is all sort of tied together with the, the stuff I was talking about before, um, forensics. Um, so people have used it. Um, uh, in the case of an unexpected death uh, in a baby going back to the dry blood spot or even um, sometimes babies have been abducted and they wanted to get some biological sample to help identify the baby. People have gone back to the dry blood spot for that. Um, uh, uh, you know, the other thing that they've been used for is um, some families have gone back to the dry blood spot if they had a baby that died of, of, of SIDS and they have a second baby and they're worried about that baby and they want to compare things. Um, people have done that. Um, there's uh, all sorts of biomedical research that you can imagine being done with it. Some of it is actually, some of it's newborn screening related and others you can look for like environmental exposures and stuff like that. There was a project that I was interested uh, in doing because there's um, these brominated uh, flame retardants are, are, you know, all over the place and they're supposed to be, uh, they're, they're thought to be endocrine disruptors. And in the past 10, 15, 20 years, there's been an increase in the birth prevalence of congenital hypothyroidism. And so um, uh, I was interested, along with a bunch of other people, to go back to look at dry blood spots to, to measure the uh, level of these flame retardants in the, in the blood and, and correlate that with what was going on with um, uh, the baby's um, thyroid function. You know why that project died? So this gets to, to your question. So these dry blood spots are, you know, often not stored in, in a carefully scientifically controlled manner, and these flame retardants are everywhere, including in the dust. And it turned out that all of all the dry blood spots were just like contaminated with um, with the flame retardants, which is kind of scary. 
But again, that's, that's like a talk for another day. So, okay, now, now we're getting to the questions that, that Jeff was asking about. So what happens to all these um, dry blood spots? So uh, there was, uh, I left off the year back, and I apologize, but this, this is fairly recently where they went back and, and looked across states to find out how long the dry blood spots were stored. And you can see there are a bunch of states that, you know, just store them somewhere uh, indefinitely. Um, and, uh, you know, some that are eight months and younger and, you know, sort of in between. Um, but, but they're definitely stored for a long time. Um, and getting to the issues of, of state laws and state controls, well, only, only um, 20 states uh, have within their regulation um, uh, something about retention of the dried blood spot and, and how the related information can be used. Um, uh, 13 states, you know, have some of this information but don't really address how the samples are to be controlled. And 18 states don't have any laws at all about what happens with the dry blood spot or the information on it. Um, uh, in, in four states, it specifically says that the dry blood spots are property of the state and the state can do whatever they want. Um, in, in two of them, I can't remember which two they are, unless the parents object in writing. Um, and in, in 10 states, the Department of Health has authority about what to do with these. I, you know, I don't want to spend too much time focusing on the exact laws because they're like in this like great state of flux. Um, but suffice it to say that there, it's all over the map with some states not having considered this at all. Which brings me to, oh, well, here, let me, before, actually, before I get to my like, punchline slide, um, there are seven states that say that dry blood spots can be released uh, for anonymous research without consent um, in three of those, unless the parents object in writing. And um, there are, states are all over the map, too, in terms of confidentiality of, of the dry blood spots. Um, uh, most states don't specify uh, the purposes for which the um, dry blood spot can be used. Um, only eight states um, require that information be provided to parents about the residual blood spot at all. And, um, you know, without getting mired in the details again, because I want to kind of keep things up to a higher level, um, states are, are all over the place in terms of uh, uh, parental control, the dry blood spots, with most uh, not really engaging um, uh, the, uh, the, um, the families. I think it was interesting here that three states allow children when they reach adulthood to request destruction of the dry blood spot. So, um, if you surveyed parents, they would actually know that this exists? No, no. So, and you know, there's this issue, I'm kind of jumping all around in my presentation, I apologize, but there's this issue of consent anyway, right? So, I mean, can you really get meaningful consent about disposition of the dry blood spots? Um, from families in the first place. I mean, it, 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 it's hard even, you know, in a very well-educated group like this to sort of talk about the nuances of all this stuff and the potential benefits of saving them. And to expect, I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time visiting different hospitals and going to nurseries, and I, I, I always hear the dry blood spots referred to as the PKU spots. So, you know, it would be those, you know, those nurses and the, the you know, physicians or whoever else working in the hospitals who would, who would ostensibly obtain some sort of informed consent from families. And I'm doubtful that it can really be done in a meaningful sort of way. Um, oops, let me, I'm just, I just want to jump over here to talk about, so where do things stand in North Carolina? So the dry blood spots are stored for five years. Okay, why five years? I don't know, five fingers, I have no idea. Um, 
I, I tell you, like when I was in Michigan, I found out that the, the dry blood spots are, um, were saved for 18 and a half years. And the reason for that was they figured that they would save them long enough for somebody when they reached the age of majority, they would get their own dry blood spot back. They could have that like six month window to ask for it. But you know, the, the sort of arbitrary um, decision making. So guess what? Our state law does not address anything related to retention, use, research, confidentiality, uh, the delivery of uh, parent information or um, parent or child control over um, uh, dry blood spots. Now, parents can opt out of uh, newborn screening, but it requires written documentation and like, I mean, who knows about how to do this stuff? And of course, what we don't want to do is like scare people and have them opt out of this, you know, what I think of as a very important public health program. Of course, I'm, you know, you could accuse me of being biased, but I, I do think that it's done a lot to reduce morbidity and mortality. But I, you know, I don't want the, the real benefit of this public health program to be messed up by the fact that, you know, people are getting like all upset about these other issues that we haven't addressed. And, you know, literally this was a topic that, that I hadn't paid attention to probably until about two or three weeks ago because, you know, I kept hearing that there were issues about it and I kept kind of thinking that it would blow over and I figured that, that somebody else was dealing with it. But, um, but you know, I think that's that's a big problem, and I, I think that that is as people realize, um, you know, their lack of control over these dry blood spots, that there's going to be a problem. And in fact, it, it has become a problem in some states because this is the reaction that the people have had. Okay, remember, like the faces were melting. I remember showing this to my son when he was really little, and I think I like scarred him for life. Um, so let's just talk about where things stand. So the uh, ACLU has taken a stance on it, and they actually have this uh, cute little logo to uh, newborn biobanks, who has your baby's DNA. Da -da. So the uh, ACLU believes that parents have the right to know before the state stores their child's blood and allows it to be used by researchers and others. The ACLU also believes that parents have the right to decide whether to allow their child's blood to be used in this way. We are working to make sure that every parent is given the opportunity to make these important decisions for their child and is given enough information to make an educated decision. So, I mean, you know, on the face of it, that, you know, it seems reasonable you want to educate people and, you know, a lot of them have control over their uh, child's uh, biological sample. But I have to say that, like, as you go around the ACLU uh, website and you see a lot of that kind of scary stuff uh, as well, um, which makes me a little worried. So, I'm not a lawyer. Um, and I, I tried to figure out what was going on with a whole series of um, recent legal suits. And I'm going to describe them to you from my very naive perspective, but understand that this is all like in a big state of flux. So there, there are two states where there have been lawsuits, Minnesota and uh, Texas. So in Minnesota, there was this, this uh, suit, Beter versus the state of Minnesota where it was decided that retention violates the state's uh, Genetic Privacy Act, and the Minnesota Supreme Court ruled that the department could not hold on to the samples. And so they developed this plan where uh, all dry blood spots will be destroyed after 71 days. Uh, 71 days, huh? who came up with that? Not me. Um, with consent to retain samples of those identified with a condition. And then records of newborn screening will be kept for two years and then destroyed. And I'm not really sure what that means. Like, you know, you want to know, you know, it, it's oftentimes very useful to know what a baby's newborn screening result was uh, many years later, uh, especially if their carrier 
uh, issues. So I'm not really sure what they mean by, and this is all very new, uh, about records of newborn screening only being kept for two years. And then uh, Minnesota uh, has really been in the forefront of developing a lot of the uh, dry blood spot tests and their, their entire archive of blood spots, which looks like that warehouse I showed you originally, um, uh, is going to be destroyed. And there, there's a new class action suit that's pending, I think, trying to even clamp down on these agreements. Um, no. <laughs> I mean, well, there's the two things, right? So there's one is the physical dry blood spot, and, and you can see where, you know, people might want to have that destroyed. But I don't know why, you know, why you would want to destroy things that are in, you know, this medical record, this, this, uh, uh, the, the records of the newborn screening. I, I, I have no idea why. And that was one of the things I was trying to, like, figure out, because I, I'm with you. But, um, you know, when I read it, I, you know, I had this image of, like, a nuclear bomb going off. You know what I mean? Instead of, you know, but I, but I think it speaks to like how heated the, the rhetoric is. I mean, there are a lot of people who are really upset about this. So, I, you know, I'm sorry. So in Texas in 2009, there were six families that uh, sued the state for storing dry blood spots uh, indefinitely uh, and using them for um, uh, undisclosed research purposes without permission. And there was a, that led to a settlement um, uh, where all dried blood spots collected before May 27, 2009 will be destroyed, and the parent uh, uh, request or consent is required uh, as of June 1, 2012, for using dry blood spots for purposes other than screening. And they're still trying to figure out, like, what that means and how that's going to be operationalized. So, you know, I'm being this, like, naive guy who's, like, not paid attention to this legal stuff, and so I was going to the... Uh, local news websites and you know newspapers and stuff like that, trying to trying to you know piece the story together, and you know you know when you like read the comments you know there's always like you know somebody like ranting and raving. Well, I found like a lot of like you know really scary things that were on the um, Texas news website. I know this is not the same as like some sort of generalized uh, survey result, but I have to say there were like some like really like. You know, it just kind of speaks to people's understanding of DNA and how things, how the world works and stuff like that. But this is probably my favorite one. So this is from one of the news websites. And I actually fixed the grammar up a bit. So um, in, in, in the interest of full disclosure. But, but, I, but the sentiment is there, right? So you can destroy the blood spots, but you still have all the DNA information. When some powerful and rich person needs a heart or a lung, they can search their database and find a perfect match. Then that person will have an accident, and all of a sudden, a perfect matching heart becomes available. So, you know, on one hand, I was like laughing, you know, just, just, just like everyone else in this room is doing. But, you know, that's the perception, you know? And, and this didn't even go to, like, you know, really being able to, you know, identify people out of a crowd or, or whatever. I mean, this is really what people are thinking, you know? And, uh, you know, I don't know what to do about that. Um, you know, I certainly had not really lived in the, in the LC world like many of you uh, in this room. Um, and I, I should say there are a lot of really very smart people working uh, on this issue, which I'll get ahead to. I'll get to. So here's staying ahead of the message, All right? How, but you know, part of me thinks like, how could we not have known that this was going to happen? Um, 
So uh, there, there's a guy by the name of Jeff Bakken, who's a pediatrician at the University of Utah, who does a lot of stuff related to uh, genetics work and LC stuff. I'm not sure if anybody in this room, does anybody know him? He's, he's, a, he's a really, uh, just a very smart, uh, thoughtful guy. And he, um, he and his group developed an educational video. We don't have time to play it. It's, it's actually like 30 minutes long um, about um, newborn screening and, and show this to, to people and, and assess the attitudes before and after. And it's part of the bigger intervention to see how, can you how do you really educate the public about these issues. You know, in general, I, I think it's fair that most members of the public are supportive of newborn screening. Um, but uh, from his survey work, about one third say that it's definitely not all right to do newborn screening without parent permission. Um, one third of families are concerned about retention. Uh, and 10%, um, so, so a, a, a minority, believe that it's definitely not all right to use residual dry blood spot for research. And um, two-thirds, and this is, this is after the educational intervention too, two-thirds would allow dry blood spots to be used for research if the parents cannot be contacted as long as they're privacy safeguards. So, you know, I think most people are, you know, when you explain these issues to them, uh, are willing to, to allow it to be used for research. Again, I'm, I, I, I'm just not overly optimistic in the ability to educate people though in the, in the, the short amount of time that you have to do so. There have been some other developments which I think are really interesting. The first I'd like to highlight is the Michigan Biotrust for Health. And what they do is they take dried, residual dried blood spots, that's what those dried blood spots are called, they de-identify, they code them, and they store them in a, in a much better condition than, than you know, the dusty broom closet. Um, so they're, they're actively saving uh, anonymized dried blood spots, and they have a community values uh, advisory board with you know just just regular people in the in the community who can help uh, determine what the policies are for using these dry blood spots. They have a they've set up a 501c3 independent nonprofit management company, the Michigan Neonatal Biobank, to store things and, and track things and make sure that things um, are appropriately done. But the Michigan Department of Community Health. Uh, Institutional Review Board reviews all proposed research. So this is, I think, a, an example of a nice, thoughtful, forward-looking approach to being able to maintain the dry blood spots for research purposes. Oops. Screen fell asleep again. Um, okay, so the, there's also been developed recently this thing called the Virtual Repository of Dry Blood Spots. So the idea being that each state can develop a similar sort of repository, and then there would be a web-based tool that you could uh, get access to specimens for research or program development or whatever. So you, um, let's see, I think I have the, yeah. So, and, and this is being done uh, through the national, the, the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network. Um, so if you were interested in using dry blood spots for, for something, you, you go to this website and you register for an account, you um, search for the kind of dry blood spots that you're interested in, if you, you know, have certain characteristics of you know, the, the uh, population. Then you make a request and um, there's all sorts of you know, paperwork that needs to be filled out related to human subjects protection. Then you receive notification of the state approval or denial of the request and um, assuming that you're approved, then you get the dry blood spots and you can you, you do your research. And then at the end, you return those that, you know, whatever residual, residual dry blood spots you have. And so there's kind of this, uh, 
method to, to more tightly control things. So I think that this is the kind of like very interesting forward looking way of dealing with the problem of residual dried spots in terms of having a, a you know sort of separate trusted agent to anonymize them. Whether or not that's really going to solve the issues uh, of concern, uh, I don't know. And so, you know, I was hoping to, to save time to, to, to think about how this intersects with um, personalized medicine. So, you know, I started thinking about the, the current state of genetic literacy just in the in the general public, which, you know, in my experience is, is pretty low. Um, and, you know, what we can do about that, not just related to this issue of, you know, dry blood spot decision making, but I, I think that there are going to be larger questions like this that are going to develop. And, and maybe if you, some of you who are actively involved in, in this kind of research could comment, that would be helpful. Um, the question about, you know, even if you could improve genetic literacy, does that, does that change attitudes about genetic testing and these dry blood spot issues? Um, uh, I'm not sure. How do we engage the public? And, you know, part of that is like, who's the public? You know, who is it that we're trying to engage? Is it the, you know, is it the uh, physicians and nurses who are going to be talking to the families or the families or the women that are pregnant or the families that are considering pregnancy? You know, what point do you do that? Um, uh, if, as you start getting feedback, how should their advice be used? So certainly I've been involved in a, in a lot of like community-based participatory research projects where you go to great efforts to get the community's advice about how to address some particular problem. And then the next thing you know, like it's all being ignored and the researchers doing whatever they want to do anyway. And I, I just don't think we can afford to do that. Um, what's the role of social media? So there's certainly a lot of social media that's been pounding against this, these issues of newborn screening and dry blood spots. Um, I, and I should probably temper that comment in that um, there are advocates, you know, who are recommending screening for any condition that you could imagine. So I'm just talking really here mostly about the residual dry blood spots. Um, although um, I was very much involved with this recommendation to screen babies for critical congenital heart disease, and I was looking, you know, I was very smug and self-satisfied when I was looking at this website that had, you know, a little comment section. Everybody's talking about like what a wonderful thing this was, and then somebody like called me a Nazi. So, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, people get mad about everything. Um, this issue, when and how should informed consent be obtained? Like, if we really want to get informed, true, truly informed consent, I don't think that you can do that in the uh, newborn nursery setting. Um, and, and, and I guess the, the larger question for you all is, um, you know, to, to what degree are uh, concerns that are developing in this public health arena reflected in these personal health care issues, um, so the kind of personalized medicine stuff that you are all engaged in. I'm not sure if this has, like, been an issue or not. So this is, like, in the, the final, like, 10 minutes or so, some of the things I'd like to talk about. But... Um, so remember I told you there were two things I was thinking about? Well, I was looking at this poster of, uh, I don't know, do you notice, is there a familiar, a similarity? Just the hat. I can't, I can't, I can't really tell. I don't want to tell you how many hours it took me to like move that face, like right. I should have gotten my kids to do it because they're a lot more, uh, but it does look pretty cool. All right, anyway. I always leave them laughing, right? But, um, I mean, what? I'm going to actually sit down because I, I was hoping that we could really sort of talk about these issues. And yeah. 
yeah, it's it's a very small issue. So there are all these companies that, that are going out that you can. So cord blood is collected in two ways. So there's um, private companies that, for a fee, will uh, bank your cord blood, and they they tend to promise all sorts of you know like you know amazing things that can be done with it, uh, and and huh? New, well, I mean, they're really like promising. You know, it's it's kind of like. Um, like cryogenics, I think probably was in the 70s. So, and then the other thing is that there are uh, some states have cord blood blanks, like North Carolina uh, has one, and they uh, they don't they don't charge for the collection of those things, um, and they also don't promise that your baby is going to directly benefit from the uh, cord blood. So they're sort of more circumspect. There's another company. I get email. I can't like you know how you, you try to get out of some of these like email thing, and it just like. I think doubles up how much you're on it. There's a company that is collecting uh, teeth from uh, babies when they lose their uh, primary teeth and storing them as a, as a source of stem cells for when they get older. I don't know how many people are doing that, and it seems a little silly, but. But I mean, do you think that there's like, um, maybe a more consumer-oriented approach to, to, to doing this? Um, I mean, I guess like many people, they just like, it just happens, right? Right. Well, that's what. So that's what that video I didn't didn't show gets into a lot of that kind of uh, stuff, sort of appealing to people's better angels and how they can, you know, although this may not help their own baby, it could, you know, help you know some sort of grander society. But that message is delivered. It takes like 30 minutes for them to get to that message. So I just don't think that's feasible. But do you think that like, do you think on an individual level, like people could do that? I mean, you know. Yeah. So I yeah I do know that for example the CDC was interested in doing a lot of this environmental stuff. That's how I ended up with the um, with the flame retardant project, the doomed flame retardant project. But um, you know, look, it's really unfortunate because now the way that these other biobanks are moving ahead is that they're anonymizing them so that you would lose the ability to have that direct consent. I think that. Um, I, I, the newborn screening stuff. Right, right. So, and that's what the, you know, and that's what those, you know, that newborn, the, that national one that I showed at the end is all based on anonymized blood spots. Uh, but at Vanderbilt, um, there's a project which you might be familiar with called BioView, mm -hmm. um, which um, every patient coming to Vanderbilt uh, Health System uh, has an opt, can opt out of, of donating their DNA to a biobank, which few people do. And, a few people um, opt out or a few people? A few people opt out. So right. just about everybody is donating a sample, and um, they essentially marry that to the electronic medical record, strip it of all the HIPAA identifiers, and have a way to do um, uh, genetics research, essentially, on um, health record-based um, outcome data, which would be a very, uh, would be, could be done with the newborn screening, uh, DNA extracted from newborn screening blood spots as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that would be a tremendous opportunity. I just... It would be hard to work with the states now to do that. One thing that you're showing is in a lot of states, these things are being destroyed pretty quickly. So you've got a lot of, you've got a big research, but you also have a lot that's being destroyed. And if there was some way to ask people, I mean, some people might not want it, just might not want it for 
research, or you were saying there were some other practical uses a few <coughs> people had found for it. So I think it's just the issue of making sure that we can get prospective consent. Right, right. I mean, they, yeah, everyone sees the blood spots being taken, but nobody knows what happens to them. I am totally with you. I think that's the way to do it. Are people looking at doing that? Yeah. So, ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetrics. Thank you, Obstetrics and Gynecology. I knew it was something like that. So, they have representation at these different federal committees and stuff like that. And they've been engaged in this issue of uh, education. There's been some pushback from them just because they feel like they're overwhelmed with all the other things that they're supposed to do. But I think at the end of the day, that's the right group of people to um, target. The issue is developing a message that they can consistently develop in a, you know, consistently deliver in a short period of time that's understandable and usable. I'm, I'm totally with you there, too. So I have a quick uh, question. Yeah. If, if, uh, is PKU still the poster child for this type of screening? Or are there other examples where there's unequivocal Well, I, I, think that, I think the things that are on the recommended universal screening panel, there's the pretty clear evidence of benefit. So. Uh, What's the second best? Well, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to pick out another one, but I mean, if you, if you, you know, great stories, you know, screening for congenital hypothyroidism, um, screening for uh, sickle cell disease has definitely been associated with prolongation of uh, uh, life. Originally, the rationale for that was because of penicillin prophylaxis, but now uh, it's probably going to be the early initiation of um, hydroxyurea. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, MCAD, mean chain, acyl, dehyd CoA, dehydrogenase deficiency. Um, the, you know, that was associated with a large number of um, SIDS deaths. The treatment for that is pretty easy in terms of just making sure that the, the, the kid ha doesn't go under any period of starvation during uh, illness. So there, there's, 
the, I, I think that there's a clear and cogent argument for the things that are on the newborn screening panel. Right. Yeah. So. Right. Right. So nothing would get added to the uh, panel if there weren't evidence that early intervention led to better outcome than later detection, like normal clinical detection. That's created uh, some consternation among some advocates because they feel like these conditions are so rare, we'll never develop an evidence base um, to allow us to develop novel therapies if we don't screen for the condition. So if you never find the baby early, you'll never be able to develop a treatment for them. I, you know, I, I, I think that there's some like valid points to be made there, but that's not really newborn screening. That's a, that's a research question and it's sort of out of this kind of public health domain stuff that we're talking about. But I can tell you none, none of the conditions um, would make it to the panel if there weren't uh, interventions available. So a completely another talk that I can like burn through another hour would be talking about the availability of the interventions though, because unfortunately a lot of the treatments are not easily available to people who are diagnosed. Yeah. Well, thank you for your feedback. Thank this you. was That's helpful. Very, very <laughs> <laughs>